Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Chapter 16 of Eddie Hurst's comedy version of The War of the Worlds, Exodus from London. And let me tell you, London, you better believe there's an exodus. People are getting out in droves. The Martians, they're here. The people, they don't want to be. So this is, uh, this is one of the more action-packed chapters that H.G. Wells does, but... There's very, very little Martian business. It's mostly uh, social commentary on people in high-pressure situations. You know, uh, a, a couple of years ago, the naive optimist in me might have said, oh, if there's a big exodus of people needing to leave London, there'd surely be some sort of organised system to make sure that people can leave in an in efficient way. It wouldn't just be a mass evacuation uh, fastest first. But I tell you what, looking at the... Uh, I don't want to date the podcast at all, however... Uh, at the time of recording, we've just we're in January. We've just come out of December, and UK listeners will be painfully aware of the two-hour to four-hour window. UK listeners will be painfully aware of the four-hour window that many Londoners were given to get out of the capital if they had any family they wanted to see for Christmas, uh, which they may not have seen for about nine months since then. All that to say that maybe H.G. Wells was kind of on the money when he thought there'd be a massive crush when people needed to escape. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Any previous listeners to the show will, of course, know this as a person. Perfect opportunity for me to play. If you're not a regular listener, thank you very much for listening. Let me explain. This is the show where we take H.G. Wells' classic sci-fi novel, The War of the Worlds, chapter by chapter, we cut it up, we take it apart, we add in some comments. It's like reading a book with a mate, which is pretty difficult to do unless you both agree to read it sentence by sentence at the exact same time, which logistically is tricky. It's tricky to orchestrate, so I've done the work for you. You're welcome. But if you are joining me now, I would urge you to go back and listen from chapter one, uh, because we're on the penultimate chapter of book one here, and there is a lot to catch up on. Also, just a quick explainer, the, the book is, you know, when you buy a book of The War of the Worlds, it, it, it's all in one. However, it is divided into two parts, so you've got book one, which is The Coming of the Martians, and then you've got book two, which is Earth Under the Martians. So that's why that's why I, I'm talking about it like that. And this is an example of some of the little comments you get. Uh, the Martians have invaded, people aren't happy about it, and there's a lot more that happened. You know, the, the guy fell asleep outside a factory, he can't, he still can't ride a bike. Uh, he tried to find his wife. Then he, then he, then he didn't got distracted. Didn't find it. It's a whole thing. There's a lot to, there's a lot to hear about. Is what I'm trying to say. And of course, thank you so much to everybody for listening. I got some wonderful feedback from you guys. I was in a, as mentioned in someone's podcast roundup of the year. So thank you very much to Mogwai First Satan on Twitter. Possibly the first time anything kind has ever actually been said on that website. If you haven't already, please do make sure you've subscribed, you rate it five stars, and you give the podcast a review. It just helps other people find it, uh, and that'd be really helpful for me. This episode, we have two guests I'm very excited to tell you about. We have Bennett Kavner, who is an award-winning musical comedian. What awards? Well, how about this? He won the uh, w- the Audience Choice... How about this? He won the Audience Choice Award at Amused Moose New Act of the Year competition this year. That's uh, one of the most prestigious new act competitions uh, in, in the UK, so good for him for that. As well as being a finalist in the Musical Comedy Awards a couple of years ago, and making some fantastic videos on Twitter, on Facebook and YouTube. He's also part of Character Building, which is a role-playing game-based podcast, which I'd very much recommend you go and listen to. Ben is going to be the narrator's brother for this episode, and also he's done a song, which is stuck in my head still. 
And we've got Jen Ives as well. She's an absolutely fantastic comedian. She was nominated for the Lester Mercury Comedian of the Year 2019, which is also one of the most prestigious new act competitions in the country. So good for her! And good for us for having her here. You can follow her at Jen Ives Comedian. You can see some of her videos on YouTube, which are which are very good as well. And she's funny, and she will be with us for the next chapter too, for she is playing both roles of Miss and Mrs. Elphinstone. Who are they? Well, let's find out by starting the podcast. Please follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Eddie Hurst. And if you've got any questions or queries, or you just want to say hi, I'm there. You can also email me, eddiehurst at gmail.com. Let's get on with chapter 16. Chapter 16, The Exodus from London. So you understand the roaring wave of fear that swept through the greatest city in the world just as Monday was dawning. The stream of flight rising swiftly to a torrent, lashing in a foaming tumult around the railway stations, banked up into a horrible struggle about the shipping in the Thames, and hurrying by every available channel northward and eastward. By ten o'clock, the police organisation, and by midday, even the railway organisations, were losing coherency, losing shape and efficiency, guttering, softening, running at last in that swift liquefaction of the social body. The only swift liquefaction of the social body I'm after is ten pints of beer and a shot of whiskey. Oi, oi! All the railway lines north of the Thames and the southeastern people at Cannon Street had been warned by midnight on Sunday, and trains were being filled. People were fighting savagely for standing room in the carriages even at two o'clock. I mean, we know that three o'clock is the witching hour, so I can only assume that two o'clock is historically known as, like, the most civilised time. The, 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 the plight hour? The plight hour. By three, people were being trampled and crushed even in Bishopsgate Street. A couple of hundred yards or more from Liverpool Street Station, revolvers were being fired. People stabbed, and the policemen, who had been sent to direct the traffic, exhausted and infuriated, were breaking the heads of people they were called out to protect. And as the day advanced and the engine drivers and stokers refused to return to London, the pressure of the flight drove people in an ever-thickening multitude away from the stations and along the northward-running roads. By midday, a Martian had been seen at Barnes. So to give you an idea, Barnes is just the other side of the Thames River from Hammersmith and from Fulham, uh, which it's about six miles from Kensington. So it's pretty much it's pretty much right in London at this point. If this was EastEnders, the Queen Vic would definitely be shutting up shop to leave now. And a cloud of slowly sinking black vapour drove along the Thames and across the flats of Lambeth, cutting off all escape over the bridges in its sluggish advance. Another bank drove over Ealing. HSBC! Onward! NatWest! Attack! And surrounded a little island of survivors on Castle Hill. Alive, but unable to escape. We've got them. Quickly, get out the documents on mortgage policies. Offer them a loan. This is just me continuing the idea that, because it said bank, I know it means like a bank of a river, but it's just a bit of fun in it to imagine that it's, it's, it's banks that are taking the people. Yeah, just a bit of just a bit of brevity whilst all of this uh, existential dread seems to be going around in the chapter. After a fruitless struggle to get aboard a northwestern train at Chalk Farm, the engines of the trains that had loaded in the goodyards there ploughed through shrieking people, and a dozen stalwart men fought to keep the crowd from crushing the driver against his furnace. Quickly, it's time! Release the stalwart men to protect us! It's our only chance! For anyone wondering, stalwart means like a strong man. Not as in like a circus strong man, just as in like a, 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 tough, a tough guy. 
my brother emerged upon the Chalk Farm Road, dodged across a hurrying swarm of vehicles, and had the look to be foremost in the sack of a cycle shop. The front tyre of the machine he had got was punctured in dragging it through the window, but he got up and off, notwithstanding with no further injury than a cut wrist. So not only is his brother younger than him, a trained doctor, but insult to the final injury, he can also ride a bike. Like, I, I totally get why the narrator has substituted himself out for this guy. And he's got £10 on him? Ooh, dreamboat! The steep foot of Haverstock Hill was impassable owing to several overturned horses, and my brother struck into Belsize Road. So he got out of the fury of the panic, and, skirting the Edgware Road, reached Edgware about seven, fasting and wearied, but well ahead of the crowd. Along the road, several people were standing in the roadway, curious, wondering. He was passed by a number of cyclists, some horsemen and two motorcars. A mile from Edgware, the rim of the wheel broke, and the machine came unrideable. He left it by the roadside and trudged through the village. R.I.P. to Forgotten Brothers, Ogilvy, Henderson, the cart and horse from a few chapters ago, and of course now, the brother's bike. There were shops half opened in the main street of the place, and people crowded on the pavement in the doorways and windows, staring astonished at this extraordinary procession of fugitives that was beginning. He succeeded in getting some food at an inn. Right, we've got no room at the inn, I'm very sorry, but we do have a lovely spread and some children's meals ready for you to take away, as you wish. For a time, he remained in Edgware, not knowing what next to do. The flying people increased in number, don't fly. That's birds. It must be birds from all the crumbs he left. God, and he calls himself a doctor. Can't tell people from birds. Well, I'm not going to his practice. Many of them, like my brother, seemed inclined to loiter in the place. There was no fresh news of the invaders from Mars. At that time, the road was crowded, but as yet far from congested. Most of the fugitives at that hour were mounted on cycles, and there were soon motorcars, handsome cabs, and carriages hurrying along, and the dust hung in heavy clouds along the road to St. Albans. Hey, up, it's me, the explaining lad. Less of a lad now, more of an old man. Looking back at my life, regrets, I've got a few. Sorry, I'm just repeating the song I've chosen to have at my funeral. My Way by Frankie Sinatra. Sin Sinatra, Frank Sinatra. I just, I want my weather, Frank Sinatra. It's my funeral, and you can cry if you want to. I came in to explain handsome cabs. They're like cabs, but it's a different type, so it's not a good-looking cab. You wouldn't go, that's a handsome cab. You'd go, that's a handsome cab. And it, it, it's just two wheels and a little cartridge attached to a horse rather than what you'd... It's not four wheels and lots of horses on it. It's, it's what the... Sort of, you know when you see somebody nowadays and they might be carrying a little a little cart that they can pull along as a human pulling other humans along? That It's that sort of thing. It's like that, but with a horse. Sorry, I'm just practising when I become a ghost because I'm so old. It was perhaps a vague idea of making his way to Chelmsford, where some friends of his lived, that at last induced my brother to strike into a quiet lane running eastward. Presently he came upon a stile, and, crossing it, followed a footpath eastward. He passed near several farmhouses and some little places whose names he did not learn. Ha! We got him! 
Finally, there's an end to HG Wells' Encyclopedic Geographic Horizon, and it is at small villages on northeastward ways towards Chelmsford. So, we definitely know that at no point in his life, to this point, did HG Wells travel northeastward to Helmsford. I'm sure we're all glad we know that now. I definitely am. What are we doing with our lives? He saw few fugitives until, in a grass lane towards High Barnet, he happened upon two ladies who became his fellow travellers. He came upon them just in time to save them. He heard their screams and, hurrying round the corner, saw a couple of men struggling to drag them out of the little pony chase in which they had been driving, while a third with difficulty held the frightened pony's head. One of the ladies, a short woman dressed in white, was simply screaming. The other, a tall, dark, slender figure, slashed at the man who gripped her arm with a whip she held in her disengaged hand. I wonder if Wells has a preference towards these two characters. The one who's just simply screaming, or the badass, dark, slender figure with a whip. I'll leave that to you to decide, except, yeah, you'll definitely see he has a preference. My brother immediately grasped the situation, shouted and hurried towards the struggle. One of the men desisted and turned towards him, and my brother, realising from his antagonist's face that a fight was unavoidable, and being an expert boxer, went into him forthwith and sent him down against the wall of the chaise. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a boxer, he's a doctor, he's a cyclist, he's all in one package, it's the narrator's brother, and he's heading off against three tops. Will he be able to do it? Do I know how to say the word chaise? Is it chaise or is it chase? We don't know. Let's find out. It was no time for pugilistic chivalry, and my brother laid him quiet with a kick, and gripped the collar of the man who pulled at the slender lady's arm. He heard the clatter of hooves, the whip stung across his face, a third antagonist struck him between the eyes, and the man he held wrenched himself free and made off down the lane in the direction from which he had come. Partly stunned, he found himself facing the man who held the horse's head, and became aware of the chaise receding from him down the lane, swaying from side to side, and with the woman in it looking back. The man before him, a burly rough, tried to close, and he stopped him with a blow in the face. Then. Realising that he was deserted, he dodged round and made off down the lane after the chaise. With the sturdy man following closely behind him, and the fugitive, who had turned now, following remotely. Suddenly he stumbled and fell. His immediate pursuer went headlong, and he rose to his feet to find himself with a couple of antagonists again. He would have little chance against them had not the slender lady very pluckily pulled up and returned to his help. It seems she had had a revolver all this time but it had been under her seat when she and her companion were attacked. She fired at six yards distance, narrowly missing my brother. The less courageous of the robbers made off, and his companion followed him, cursing his cowardice. A curse upon his cowardice! They both stopped in sight down the lane, where the third man lay insensible. The role of Miss and Mrs Elphinstone will be played by Jen Ives. You're really lucky that I'm even doing this podcast, to be honest with you. Take this said the slender lady, and she gave my brother her revolver. The role of narrator's brother this chapter will be played by Bennett Kavner. The idea of chivalry is, I guess it was called quite sexist, but it's still a nice thing and a gentlemanly thing to do. Go back to the chaise, said my brother, wiping the blood from his split lip. She turned without a word. They were both panting, and they went back to where the lady in white struggled to hold back the frightened pony. The robbers had evidently had enough of it. 
When my brother looked again, they were retreating. I'll sit here, said my brother, if I may. And he got upon the empty front seat. The lady looked over her shoulder. Give me the reins, she said, and laid the whip along the pony's side. In another moment, a bend in the road hid the three men from my brother's eyes. So, quite unexpectedly, my brother found himself, panting, with a cut mouth, a bruised jaw and blood-stained knuckles, driving along an unknown lane with these two women. He learned they were the wife and the younger sister of a surgeon living in Stanmore, who had come in the small hours from a dangerous case at Pinner, and heard at some railway station on his way of the Martian advance. He had hurried home, roused the women, their servant had left them two days before, packed some provisions, put his revolver under the seat, luckily for my brother, and told them to drive on to Edgware, with the idea of getting a train there. He stopped behind to tell the neighbours. He would overtake them, he said, at about half past four in the morning, and now it was nearly nine and they had seen nothing of him. They could not stop in Edgware because of the growing traffic through the place, and so had come into this side lane. That was the story they told my brother in fragments when presently they stopped again, nearer to New Barnet. I love the implication that he's saying that as if the brother could think it was all lies, as if these two women are, like, pulling a fast one on this route. Those three lads from before, they were all actors. It's all part of a giant ploy just to get you, narrator's brother, and your ten pounds, and your fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. He promised to stay with them, at least until they could determine what to do, or until the missing man arrived, and professed to be an expert shop with the revolver, a weapon strange to him, in order to give them confidence. Well, now who's the liar? You are. Look, I know I'm going in from an aside into a longer aside, but this is going to be a bit of a deep dive uh, because I want to talk a little bit about the gun laws because if you've listened to the Halloween special with the Red Room, you'll have heard that a revolver seems to be a go-to weapon for Victorians or at least Victorians in the HG Wells universe and I guess that kind of makes sense? I mean, I personally keep finding it weird that people are just carrying guns around but then at this time, if you went across the Atlantic then bang bang, shoot shoot, hey, you're in cowboy territory. Yeehaw! Cowboy. So if they're all riding astride their horses with a six-shooter by their thighs, then why can't the good old-fashioned gentle people of Britain also be armed to the teeth with tiny exploding barrels? What hell, old bean? I guess for me at least, it's probably a little weird to think about people in Britain just carrying guns about. What with nowadays it being totally illegal to do that, at least not without some form of license. To kill? Clearly, this was a time when it was less of a shock to see somebody brandishing a gun whilst they were running down Chobham High Street. So buckle up and be sure to bring some pocket change for sports almanacs as we borrow Herbert George's time machine and go back through gun laws of the ages. One part one butter, part butter. One, part one part mortal, mortal. Oh man! So the first gun law that we get is in 1689, and that is, on paper, the right for all men to bear arms. Insert a joke here if you want about arming bears, you know, it's just a bit of fun, but you can keep that for yourself. Which you might recognise that phrase as being more of an American thing, but this was actually originally introduced by William and Mary of Orange as part of their Declaration of Rights in the Glorious Revolution. What can I tell you about William and Mary and their glorious revolution? Not a lot, as we've all got places to be and I didn't learn it at school. What is worth telling you, though, is that whilst it was anyone's monarch given right to pack some heat, said heat at this time was probably in the form of a musket or a big-ass rifle. The sort of thing that once you'd fired it, you need to take a good five to ten minutes to reload. 
all those sort of fancy dueling pistols, you know, that you get out of a box and you take the paces, they do it in cartoons and in, in, in period drama films, but even those, they're like a little ball that you stick into a gun, so it takes ages to reload it, so in terms of being a danger to society, like, you'd have one shot and then that'd kind of be it. You know, like in Hamilton, when he says he's not giving up his shot, and people talk about having their one shot, that's because they, they had one shot, followed by about 10 minutes of, of reloading, so by the time they were taking another shot, it'd be way too late. It's also useful to know that at this time, the UK still controlled the American colonies, or at least the part of it that was British controlled, so over there it was a little more useful to be able to have access to guns at hand to protect from any giant bears, tigers, eagles, or natives that for some strange reason seem a little knocked off that you've stolen all their land and given them diseases. Onward! Onward. For the next gun law, we're in 1870, which is about three decades before the book, give or take a few years, and we have the first ever gun law after just a general It's your right to have a gun. No, it's your right to have a gun. It's my right to have a gun. It's everybody's right to have a gun, baby! This was the requirement to have a license if, and only if, you want to take a gun outside of your house. So don't worry, you can still keep your arsenal of handguns, shotties, and rifles a secret just as long as you only shoot them from inside your house. At this time, revolvers and handguns were becoming more widespread in the country, particularly in cities as a dignified means of self-defense. Everyone's favorite fictional heroin addict, Sherlock Holmes, would carry a revolver on the reg, as well as employing a gentleman's martial art called Baritsu. I mean, honestly, I could spend all of this deep dive going on for long about how mad Baritsu or Bartitsu is. It's like a fighting style that was made in France for gentlemen, and it uses a cape and a cane as part of its weapons. <laughs> I mean, what is that? Like, anyway, we're here for the guns, dammit! Another reason why we find little regulation for firearms at the time that we find the narrator's brother living in is that guns were pretty expensive. Like, a Webley revolver, which from what I can find is a pretty standard type of gun at the time, would set you back three pounds. Which doesn't seem that much now, but if you pop that in the inflation meter, that's around 363 pounds. Like, you know, this isn't something that everybody can afford. This was an investment for protection by the middle and the upper classes. The precious and petty bourgeoisie whose only crime wouldn't really be from using a gun, it would be potentially the exploitation of the working class and tax fraud. Quite right, too. So that's where we're up to in the book. Anyone with a wedge of cash could knock around with a handgun, providing they got a license. But certainly at a time of mass panic and exodus from London, I doubt a major priority was going, Oi, lad, you got a license for that? Oh, uh, you do. All right, crack, crack on, crack on, doll. But how do we get to where we are now? Well, let's push the accelerator on the time machine. Uh, uh, I mean, technically, it should be a lever based on the description of the time machine. It's really a cyber. I'm very excited to use it, and I think it really... 1903! The Pistols Act! In what I can only assume is the first recorded Christmas gift trend, thanks to Sherlock Holmes, a specific bill was put in place to curb the rampant revolvers running riot on Regency Road. This was specifically to deny ownership to anyone drunken or insane. But as far as I can see, there is a bit of a loophole that if you're drunk and insane, that's absolutely fine. I'm mad as hell and I've just downed five pints! Now give me that Glock, baby! 1920. The Firearms Act. Following a little event known as the Russian Revolution, where the aristocracy and elites were gathered together and shot up, the UK government and ruling classes introduced stricter registration system for anyone with a gun, and also they gave the police rights to deny a license to anyone deemed unfit. Your dissidents, your revolutionaries, 
You're anyone they didn't like the look of. As you go through a lot of British history, actually you'll find that a lot of the things that were put in place to protect people was largely just to protect a riot against a government happening. 1937. As they became more readily available, most fully automatic weapons were banned from the country. Basically, a similar move to 1920, where the government was scared that people might rise up and take over, so they got rid of their ability to do so rather than addressing why they might be so angry. Uh, a little point here is that this was during the Great Recession of Britain, where unemployment had gone to 1.5 million. It had gone down that year and then went right back up to 1.8. My lord, the people in the country seem angry that they've got no jobs and the economy's in the shitter and that Europe's got unrest. What on earth shall we do? Take away their automatic weapons. There's no possible other alternative. I'd also like to say that I, I am in favour of taking away fully automatic weapons from most people. Uh, I think that's probably a bad idea. But it's interesting to me that oftentimes the government, rather than looking at the uh, cause of why people might be angry and there might be unrest in a country, instead they deal with the symptoms. You know, it's like those stories of Chinese factories putting nets outside the windows to stop people jumping out of them. I mean, yeah, it kind of works, but that's not really the point. 1967 and 1968. Here we have some more rules on shotguns where they're required to have a license and annual fees could be set. Groovy, baby! And so after that, I mean, there's like a couple more bills that further regulate and control guns. And then we're where we are now, with nearly all guns in, in the UK requiring a registration and a license. But for the sake of this bit, the main thing to remember is in Victorian times, for the most part, anyone could have a gun. But they are expensive, so you probably didn't have a gun. They made a sort of encampment by the wayside, and the pony became happy in the hedge. He told them of his own escape out of London, and all that he knew of these Martians and their ways. The sun crept higher in the sky, and after a time their talk died out and gave place to an uneasy state of anticipation. Several wayfarers came along the lane, and of these my brother gathered as much news as he could. Every broken answer he had deepened his impression of the great disaster that had come on humanity, deepened his persuasion of the immediate necessity for prosecuting this flight, he urged the matter upon them. We have money, said the slender woman, and hesitated. Her eyes met my brother's, and her hesitation ended. So have I, said my brother. Oh, is this a little bit of flirting I spy, via what I only can assume is the most middle-class Victorian means possible? Expendable income. She explained that they had as much as £30 in gold, besides a £5 note, and suggested that with that they might get upon a train at St Albans or New Barnet. My brother thought that was hopeless, seeing the fury of the Londoners to crowd upon the trains, and broached his own idea of striking across Essex towards Harwich, and thence escaping from the country altogether. Mrs Elphinstone, that was the name of the woman in white, would listen to no reasoning and kept calling upon George. But her sister-in-law was astonishingly quiet and deliberate, and at last agreed to my brother's suggestion. Bloody hell, she's got a name? A whip? Agency? I take back what I was saying about H.G. Wells writing of female characters. This is the most dimensions of any character we've seen in the book yet. So, designing to cross the Great North Road, they went on towards Barnet, my brother leading the pony to save it as much as possible. As the sun crept up the sky, the day became excessively hot, and underfoot a thick, whitish sand grew burning and blinding, so that they travelled only very slowly. The hedges were grey with dust, and as they advanced towards Barnet, a tumultuous murmuring grew stronger. They began to meet more people. For the most part, these were staring before them, 
murmuring indistinct questions. Indistinct questions. Jaded, haggard, unclean. One man in evening dress passed them on foot, his eyes on the ground. They heard his voice, and looking back at him, saw one hand clutched in his hair and the other beating invisible things. His paroxysm of rage over, he went on his way without once looking back. It sounds right awful, doesn't it? Paroxysm of rage. Well, I tell you what paroxysm is. I don't know if you know already. It's an outburster of emotional activity. You probably might have been able to figure that out, but just in case you want to add it to your vocabulary, paroxysm. Ooh, that person's acting in an outburst of emotional activity. That is a paroxysm. You're welcome. As my brother's party went on towards the crossroads to the south of Barnet, they saw a woman approaching the road across some fields on their left, carrying a child and with two other children, and then passed a man in dirty black, with a thick stick in one hand and a small portmanteau in the other. Then, round the corner of the lane, from between the villas that guarded it at its confluence with the high road, came a little cart drawn by a sweating black pony and driven by a sallow youth in a bowler hat, grey with dust. There were three girls, East End factory girls, and a couple of little children crowded in the cart. This'll take us round Edgeware? asked the driver. Wild-eyed, white-faced, and when my brother told him it would if he turned to the left, he whipped up at once without the formality of thanks. Ugh, the youth. Am I right? Am, am, am I, am I right? Am I? My brother noticed a pale grey smoke or haze rising among the houses in front of them unveiling the white facade of a terrace beyond the road that appeared between the backs of the villas. Mrs Elphinstone suddenly cried out at a number of tongues of smoky red flame leaping up above the houses in front of them against the hot, blue sky. The tumultuous noise resolved itself now into a disorderly mingling of many voices. The gride of many wheels, the creaking of wagons, and the staccato of hooves. The lane came round sharply not fifty yards from the crossroads. Good heavens! cried Mrs Elphinstone. What is this you are driving us into? My brother stopped, for the main road was a boiling stream of people, a torrent of human beings rushing northward, one pressing on another. A great bank of dust, white and luminous in the blaze of the sun, made everything within twenty feet of the ground grey and distinct and was perpetually renewed by the hurrying feet of a dense crowd of horses, of men and women on foot, and by the wheels of vehicles of every description. My brother heard voices crying. Go my way! It was like riding into the smoke of a fire to approach the meeting point of the lane and the road. The crowd roared like a fire, and the dust was hot and pungent. And, indeed, a little way up the road a villa was burning and sending rolling masses of black smoke across the road to add to the confusion. Two men came past them. Then a dirty woman carrying a heavy bundle and weeping. A lost retriever dog, with hanging tongue, circled dubiously round them, scared and wretched and fled at my brother's threat. Listen, buddy, you better F off or I'm gonna sue that bone right out of your mouth, pooch. So much as they could see out of the road Londonward between the houses to the right was a tumultuous stream of dirty, hurrying people, bent in between the villas on either side. The black heads, the crowded forms, grew into distinctness as they rushed towards the corner hurried past, and merged their individuality again in a receding multitude that was swallowed up at last in a crowd of dust. Go on! Go on! Cried the voices. Way, way! 
This episode, not only is Bennett Kavanagh doing the voice of the narrator's brother, he's also very kindly written a song based on the phrase, Way Way. So, without further ado, here is a little chat followed by the song. Yeah, I I don't feel I'm a high person, but then I, I think hello is too formal. Um, I say you're right, actually. I say that that's the one I say the most. But like you will, you will write. Yeah. So if I'm like walking around and then you just call my name. Uh, okay. So it, we'll we'll play for the for the benefit of the listener. Uh, ben, ben, Bennett is um he's walking. He's doing a little walky thing. Uh, hey 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 Bennett Kavner. Oh, you're right, Eddie. Oh, lovely. That's nice. I like that. Oh, that felt good. That felt yeah. That felt a lot better. I'm gonna edit all that so that you're just saying that bit. <laughs> Thank you so much for the song. Uh, I th- oh yeah, I love it. It's great. Way, way, way. That's uh, <laughs> not. It's not, of course, not inspired by the famous Chinese uh, dissident artist, but by by a phrase in the chapter. Oh, oh yeah, I could have gone down that route, couldn't I? I, I mean, you could you could have, but it would have been really out of place. Um, when you write a song, how do you? How do you approach it? So obviously for this, you had the chapter to go for mm. and you had the phrase. You had the, the, the phrase, way, way. Yeah. I don't really have a sort of set way of writing, but, but say for this one, basically what happened, I was sort of reading through the chapter, basically trying to find something. You know, you're always, you're always trying to look for a hook. And I think a good song, you start off with a chorus, you start off with a good hook that people can sing along to. Um, and I just read that phrase, way, way. And it, it kind of read it and I kind of stopped a bit because I thought, Wait, what? Is this like another sort of weird Victorian way of, of saying stuff? Is it you saying make way, get out the way? Yeah, it's it's one of the things I, I really like about the way H.G. Wells writes the dialogue in the book is that he it's it's like he can't quite figure out figure out whether he just wants to put dialogue in for the sake of showing that this is a human saying a meaning of a thing, or if he's trying to emulate what somebody would actually say in that situation so i think you sort of get these like half phrases like way way it's like that's not i don't think anyone has ever said way way and somebody's gone yeah make way i get it no yeah make way oh oh, do you and do you mean um the sort of whenever someone sort of tries to write someone with an accent in the book yes to say there's a scottish character and it's oh i I, on the and they're actually spelling out yeah yeah offensive vowels it's a very Victorian literature thing, that. Very yeah. Victorian literature. Is that I will talk in the common tongue. Actually, another thing, it's, it's mainly like a Jane Austen thing, but I think it's a Victorian thing as well. And it used to throw me off, which is when they have Anne before a word that starts with an, an H. So Anne the house or something. Oh, right. Just because they wanted to emphasise the silent H. Because that was so important to them. You sort of read it as like, and uh, Mrs. Elizabeth went... Uh, walked and saw and house I'd... it's it's better prose when you read it i'm paraphrasing <laughs> one thing i did want to want to bring up though is that you you're writing from the point of view of the humans and i just did you feel like you could relate to the humans more than you can the martians and if so why wow that's a, that's a that's a very good question um yeah i'm not afraid of cutting deep you know what i, I guess fundamentally I, I do have a bias deep down Okay. To to um to towards no up 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 against the humans, not towards towards the humans again. No, a bias against something and then bias towards something. So it's bias towards the humans and against the Martian. It's a complex. It's a complex issue. It's good of you to to sort of recognize that in yourself. Though. Yeah, I've 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 never really you know it, I've I've never really had to sort of confront that about myself. Maybe I am prejudiced against Martians. Yeah, spacist. 
space racist. <laughs> space was that just building up to <laughs> to say spacist? Unbelievable. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've um where you've been part of like a really momentous moment in history that's changed the world. You know, like in the way that the Martians mm. invade and all of life has changed. I don't know if I mean probably not even in the last year you've experienced something where you know, all the social norms have been turned upside down. Um, I don't no. know if you've been through does that. The, does the vegan sausage roll count? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, no, okay, that's a really okay. good... Yeah, when the vegan sausage roll invaded, you know, everybody has a story of where they were at that time. Yeah. Um, and I just Absolutely. I just wanted to sort of ask you, like, you know, you go through a lot of the humans in the in the song um, and a lot of different roles, mm. a lot of different people. If If you were around during something like that, what do you think you would be up to? Like, who do you think you would be in the in London? Oh, what during the the Martian? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. What what sort of role do you think you'd be running away? Would you be pushing? What'd you be up to? Oof. Um, I've always thought. Well, I'm a I'm a very awkward, gangly person. So I've, so I've always imagined whenever like a zombie invasion would happen, um, you know, I'd be running for a bit, but then there would be a point I would be holding the door open for someone, you know, and I'd be desperate. I'd be I'd be very awkward about it. I don't think I could push a mother down a. Uh, well, or, or what? And no one's asking you to. Oh, oh, do I not? Do I not have to? No. no. Uh, yeah, we could. We could find a well. <laughs> Is there not a well nearby? <laughs> you know, it's because you know everything's so confusing at the minute. I just, uh, just find a well. I love that. I just ask, how would you be coping in an invasion? So I wouldn't push your mother down the well, certainly, as if you're definitely looking for wells with mothers by them. Look, we've ruled that out. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It makes me worry that if I didn't ask you that question, would you be hanging out by water sources? No, I, I think I would be. I'd be running for my life. Okay. I think Fair. you know, I, I get I get incredibly selfish during uh, during any sort of big event right. like that. Right. Um, I basically yeah just care about the family. Okay. Sort of lock it down. Yeah. Um, you know, you hope everyone else is 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 doing fine. But, um... <laughs> but as long as they don't get up at that well. Way, way. His magic meaning must be delayed. 
am no, I'm, I'm dead. I'm dead now. One man's hand pressed on the back of another. My brother stood at the pony's head. Irresistibly attracted, he advanced slowly, pace by pace, down the lane. Edgware had been a scene of confusion, Chalk Farm a riotous tumult. But this was a whole population in movement. It is hard to imagine that host. It had no character of its own. The figures poured out past the corner and receded with their backs to the group in the lane. Along the margin came those who were on foot, threatened by the wheels, stumbling in the ditches, blundering into one another. The carts and carriages crowded close upon one another, making little way for those swifter and more impatient vehicles that darted forward every now and then when an opportunity showed itself of doing so, sending the people scattering against the fences and the gates of the villas. Push on! cried the voices. Push on! They're coming! In one cart stood a blind man in the uniform of the Salvation Army, gesticulating with his crooked finger and bawling. Eternity! Eternity! His voice was hoarse and very loud so that my brother could hear him long after he was lost to sight in the dust. I mean, that is... Can you think of anything more peak human apocalypse than somebody screaming about salvation, eternity and damnation of souls? He's, I don't know if it's a cliche at this point, but I don't even care. I don't want to know. I think he's nailed it. Some of the people who crowded in the carts whipped stupidly at their horses and quarrelled with other drivers. Some sat motionless, staring at nothing with miserable eyes. Some gnawed their hands with thirst or lay prostrate in the bottoms of their conveyances. The horses' bits were covered with foam, their eyes bloodshot. There were cabs, carriages, shop carts, wagons, beyond counting. A mail cart, a road cleaner's cart marked Vestry of St Pancras. A huge timber wagon crowded with roofs. A brewer's dray rumbled by with its two near wheels splashed with fresh blood. Fresh blood, get your fresh blood, straight from man's vein and into a bucket. Clear the way! Clear the way! Cried the voices. Clear the way! Come on, move on! Eternity! Eternity! Came echoing down the road. There were sad, haggard women tramping by, well-dressed, with children that cried and stumbled, their dainty clothes smothered in the dust, their weary faces smeared with tears. With many of these came men, sometimes helpful, sometimes lowering and savage. Fighting side by side with them pushed some weary street outcast in faded black rags, wide-eyed, loud-voiced and foul-mouthed. There were sturdy workmen thrusting their way along, wretched, unkept men, clothed like clerks or shopmen, struggling spasmodically. A wounded soldier, my brother noticed, men dressed in the clothes of railway porters, one wretched creature in a nightshirt with a coat thrown over it. But varied as its composition was, certain things all that host had in common. I don't know if anybody else is getting a little confused by this, but when it says the host and that host, it's sort of like in a way that we would say a host of people, so we use it as a collective noun. It's like a group, you know, it, it's the group of people, if you think of it in that way. Like, I know you've probably figured that out from the context in which it's being used, but I just thought it'd be worth explaining it at this point, because I find it kind of weird too. There were fear and pain on their faces, and fear behind them. A tumult up the road, a quarrel for a place in a wagon, sent the whole host of them quickening their pace. Even a man so scared and broken that his knees bent under him was galvanised for a moment into renewed activity. The heat and dust had already been at work upon this multitude. Their skins were dry, their lips black and cracked. They were all dusty, weary and footsore. Vomit on the sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. 
And amid the various cries, one heard disputes, reproaches, groans of weariness and fatigue. The voices of most of them were hoarse and weak. Through it all ran a refrain. The Martians are coming! Few stopped and came aside from the flood. The lane opened slantingly into the main road with a narrow opening and had a delusive appearance of coming from the direction of London. Yet a kind of eddy of people drove into its mouth, weaklings elbowed out of the stream, who, for the most part, rested but a moment before plunging into it again. A little way down the lane, with two friends bending over him, lay a man with a bare leg, wrapped about with bloody rags. He was a lucky man to have friends. Yeah, because he was a right dickhead. A little old man, with a grey military moustache and a filthy black frock coat, limped out and sat down beside the trap, removed his boot, his sock was bloodstained, shook out a pebble and hobbled on again. And then a little girl of eight or nine, all alone, threw herself under the hedge close by my brother, weeping. I can't go on! I can't go on! My brother woke from his torpor of astonishment and lifted her up, speaking gently to her and carried her to Miss Elphinstone. So soon as my brother touched her, she became quite still, as if frightened. Why are you crying? You shall live with me and my new wife now. Ellen! Shrieked a woman in the crowd, with tears in her voice. Ellen! And the child suddenly darted away from my brother, crying. Mother! Shout out to Steven Spielberg's version of the film with Tom Cruise in, where he does the exact same thing. He tries to abduct a child, and then he gets all arsy when it turns out she has a mother. They are coming, said a man on horseback, riding past along the lane. Yeah, no shit, why do you think everyone's running away? God, I hate those sorts of people who, like, they're just saying something to try and make themselves feel important. Like, even when Martians are attacking, you feel like it's your opportunity to be, like, bossy around people. Come on, get in the bin. Out of the way there, bawled a coachman, towering high, and my brother saw a closed carriage turning into the lane. The people crushed back on one another to avoid the horse. My brother pushed the pony and shares back into the hedge, and the man drove by and stopped at the turn of the way. It was a carriage, with a pole for a pair of horses, but only one was in the traces. My brother saw dimly through the dust that two men lifted out something on a white stretcher and put it gently on the grass beneath the privet hedge. One of the men came running to my brother. Where is there any water? He said. He is dying fast and very thirsty. It is Lord Garrick. Lord Garrick, said my brother. The Chief Justice? The water, he said. There may be a tap, said my brother. In some of the houses. We have no water. I dare not leave my people. What I love is that the narrator's brother clearly knows who this guy is, but is not bothered enough when he knows who he is to actually help him. It's amazing. And also, the liberties he's taking to say, these are my people. Well, he's only been with them for a few minutes. Here's they got 30 quid's worth of gold bars, and all of a sudden he's trying to marry one of them. Absolute horn dog. The man pushed against the crowd towards the gate of the corner house. Go on! Go on! Said the people, thrusting at him. They're coming! They're coming! Go on! Then my brother's attention was distracted by a bearded, eagle-faced man lugging a small handbag, which split even as my brother's eyes rested on it and disgorged a mass of sovereigns that seemed to break up into separate coins as it struck the ground. They rolled hither and thither among the struggling feet of men and horses. The man stopped and looked stupidly at the heap, and the shaft of a cab struck his shoulder and sent him reeling. 
He gave a shriek and dodged back, and a cartwheel shaved him narrowly. Way! Make way! Make way! Cried all the men around him. Soon as the cab had passed, he flung himself, with both hands open, upon the heap of coins, and began thrusting handfuls into his pocket. A horse rose close upon him, and in another moment, half rising, he had been borne down under the horse's hooves. Stop! Screamed my brother, and pushing a woman out of his way, tried to clutch the bit of the horse. Before he could get to it, he heard a scream under the wheels, and saw through the dust the rim passing over the poor wretch's back. The driver of the cart slashed his whip at my brother, who ran round behind the cart. The multitudinous shouting confused his ears. The man was writhing in the dust among his scattered money, unable to rise, for the wheel had broken his back, and his lower limbs lay limp and dead. My brother stood up and yelled at the next driver, and a man on a black horse came to his assistance. Get him out of the road, said he, and, clutching the man's collar with his free hand, my brother lugged him sideways. But he still clutched after his money, and regarded my brother fiercely, hammering at his arms with a handful of gold. Go on! Go on! Go on! Shouted angry voices behind. Way, way! There was a smash as the pole of a carriage crashed into the cart that the man on horseback stopped. My brother looked up, and the man with the gold twisted his head round and bit the wrist that held his collar. There was a concussion, and the black horse came staggering sideways, and the cart horse pushed beside it. A hoof missed my brother's foot by a hair's breadth. He released his grip on the fallen man and jumped back. He saw anger change to terror on the face of the poor wretch on the ground, and in a moment he was hidden, and my brother was borne backward, and carried past to the entrance of the lane, and had to fight hard in the torrent to recover it. Bloody hell, that was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? I just wanted to check in and see if you're alright. I think that's what they're describing Victorian times as a to-do. He saw Miss Elphinstone covering her eyes, and a little child, with all a child's want of sympathetic imagination, staring with dilated eyes at a dusty something that lay black and still, ground and crushed under the rolling wheels. Let us go back, he shouted, and began turning the pony round. We cannot cross this hell, he said, and they went back a hundred yards the way they had come, until the fighting crowd was hidden. As they passed the bend in the lane, my brother saw the face of the dying man in the ditch under the privet, deadly white and drawn, and shining with perspiration. The two women lay silent, crouching in their seat and shivering. Then, beyond the bend, my brother stopped again. Miss Elphinstone was white and pale, and her sister-in-law sat weeping, too wretched even to call upon. My brother was horrified and perplexed. He began to suspect that they may be upset. So soon as they had retreated, he realised how urgent and unavoidable it was to attempt this crossing. He turned to Miss Elphinstone, suddenly resolute. We must go that way, he said and led the pony round again. For the second time that day, this girl proved her quality. To force their way into the torrent of people, my brother plunged into the traffic and held back a cab horse, while she drove the pony across its head. A wagon locked wheels for a moment and ripped a long splinter from the chaise. In another moment, they were caught and swept forward by the stream. My brother, with the cabman's whip marks red across his face and hands, scrambled into the chaise and took the reins from her. Point the revolver at the man behind, he said, giving it to her. If he presses us too hard. No, point it at his horse. If you're staring at a horse down the barrel of a gun, 
is you're trying so hard to impress myself in stone. The Martians are coming, so you better make way, way. Even Chief Justice Lord Garrick's having a pretty shitty day. Pretty shitty day. Pretty shitty day. Oh, if you're on a busy road in a car out of luck, you've seen many people on the mud so stuck. Maybe it's time you take a good hard look and admit. Oh, you kind of fucked. Then he began to look out for a chance of edging to the right across the road. But once in the stream, he seemed to lose volition, to become a part of that dusty route. They swept through Chipping Barnet with the torrent. They were nearly a mile beyond the centre of the town before they had fought across to the opposite side of the way. It was din and confusion indescribable. But in and beyond the town, the road forked repeatedly and this to some extent relieved the stress. They struck eastward through Hadley, and there on either side of the road, and at another place farther on, they came upon a great multitude of people drinking at the stream, some fighting to come at the water. And farther on, from a lull near East Barnet, they saw two trains running slowly, one after the other, without signal or order, trains swarming with people, with men, even among the coals behind the engines, going northward along the Great Northern Railway. My brother supposes they must have filled outside London, for at that time the furious terror of the people had rendered the central termini impossible. Uh, to be honest, that doesn't sound that different from getting a train from Euston back up north on any given evening now. Near this place they halted for the rest of the afternoon, for the violence of the day had already utterly exhausted all three of them. They began to suffer the beginnings of hunger. The night was cold, and none of them dared to sleep. And in the evening, many people came hurrying along the road nearby their stopping place, fleeing from unknown dangers before them, and going in the direction from which my brother had come. There you go. Not the most dramatic final sentence of the chapter, I'll admit, but... There's been a whole lot of drama in this chapter, right? You know, there was Lord Garrick. The Chief Justice. The very same. He needed some water. Did he get it? We'll never know. I mean, seriously, we won't know. It's not covered in chapter 17. Chapter 17 is, of course, The Thunder Child. <laughs> what? You mean from the song by Jeff Wayne? Yes, I mean from the song by Jeff Wayne. What a fantastic bookend to what will be book one. We've got some fantastic guests coming back as well. We've got Jen Ives. She's going to be there. Um, by the way, if you enjoyed Jen Ives on the show, uh, I mean, she's not had a massive role yet. We have a bigger chat with her in the next chapter, but follow her at Jen Ives Comedian. That's the same on Instagram, and also you can see her website, jenives.net, and some of her videos on YouTube if you search Jen Ives. She also has a podcast called Peak Trans, which I would urge you to listen to if you'd like to find out the latest in the news of trans rights, which, honestly, this year has been a real roller coaster. So it's nice to have somebody talking about it, and what's more, doing it in a very funny way. Bennett Kavner was also on this episode and gave us the fantastic song, Way Way. If you'd like to follow him, don't worry, you absolutely can. This is the thing about comedians, they absolutely want the attention. And you can follow him on Twitter, Facebook, that's Bennett Cav, B-E-N-N-E-T-K-A-V. 
That's the same for Instagram, and you can also find his page on Facebook. Please remember, if you haven't already, to subscribe to the podcast and give us either a rating of five stars on whatever you can. You can't do it on Spotify, so please go on to Apple or Google Podcasts, or even Podchaser. You know, whatever, wherever you can rate a podcast. Give us a nice rating and a review, and it helps other people find the podcast. It shares it around. Why not? You can also follow me at edyhurst on Twitter. Uh, my page is on Facebook as the same spelling, and I'm on Instagram as that. Because turns out, when you spell your name weird, nobody else wants it. We'll be here with the next chapter, which is The Thunder Child. It is the finale of Series 1, and I just want to say thank you so much for listening along. When I started this ridiculous project during the uh, the great famine of the comedy industry, I didn't know if anyone would, would be interested. So it is really, really nice and heartening to see that people are. So uh, there's a rare bit of sincerity. Thanks for that. Uh, don't worry, I will shroud myself in irony once more. So I'll see you next chapter. So I'll see you for the next chapter, chapter 17. Uh, the Thunder Child. The Thunder Child. Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by H.G. Wells and Eddie Hurst. Special thanks this episode to Jen Ives and Bennett Kavner, and of course, our theme tune is by the fantastic Ichabod Wolf is The Fall of Saigon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and follow me at Eddie Hurst on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you want to email me about anything, it's eddiehurst at gmail.com. Okay, thanks, bye!